Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers, episode 11, Fear Cuts Deeper Than Swords. I'm Scatty, and we have with us Matt and Brooke, as always. Hello. And we will be walking through five chapters again today, just like we do every week. Uh, this week we have Arya 4, Sansa 4, John 7, Bran 6, and Danny 6. That's chapters 50 to 54, according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. And uh, we're back to our standard 90-minute format this week. After our, our marathon two-hour episode last time. Uh, just a reminder, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast when we have a special segment called Davos After Dark. Uh, as always, we'll warn you with our nifty little music cue. But uh, if you don't want to be spoiled at all, then uh, jump off at that time. I know we've been interacting with some readers that are not all the way through the books yet, and, uh, and we'll want to turn that off. So just jump off when you hear that. Uh, also wanted to update, Brooke has been busy. She's been taking our website to the mats and... Uh, Getting them, getting it spiffed up, and uh, we've got now links to each episode, uh, so you can you can find uh, previous episodes there. There's a, a page called Meet the Fingers where you can learn a little bit about your three hosts. Uh, there's an FAQ page as well. Uh, we're going to be updating it uh, as we get some feedback and everything like that. But go check it out. Once again, that's uh, DavosFingers.com. It'll redirect you to the Tumblr site, and that's what we've been updating. So take a look. It's pretty sweet what she's done. And, uh, Just to clarify, team effort and work in progress. Yeah, team effort. Uh, Matt, team effort. Matt, Matt and I looked and nodded our heads. Mostly Brooke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, lastly, uh, as always, I like to encourage feedback. Uh, you guys have been great. been hearing a lot, a lot of feedback from you guys, questions and comments and just general support. So love it. Uh, love to hear more. Uh, again, you can do that just through the Tumblr site, DavosFingers.com. Uh, email at uh, wearedavosfingers at gmail.com, Twitter at davosfingers, or of course you can find us and like us on Facebook. Um, thanks again to all the support, guys. And uh, We love you. So much. Yeah. All right. And uh, also, if you have a, a question for one of us specifically, note it, because sometimes if you want to hear from somebody specifically, you got a question, um, kind of whoever sees it first sometimes answers. So anyway. Um, that was a big hint, audience. Scad wants you to ask him questions. <laughs> uh, yeah. And if you're going to write him in Portuguese, don't worry, I'll get to him. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, thanks, Matt. You Take can give Spanish a try. I minored in Spanish, but haven't spoken it in 10 years, so uh, I might misunderstand your question. So, I can read French labels, so... That's right. The Canadian has to read French labels all the time. Yes. So we've pretty much got every base covered. Every mm-hmm. every base, if there were only four languages. Every in the linguistic world. base. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Matt, it's your episode. Anything else before uh, we jump into chapters? I'm kicking us off again this week. Nope, uh, I'll kick it right back to you, All as right. we are wont to do. So that's right. Take it well, away. We're starting this week with uh, with an Arya chapter. Arya, horse face, underfoot, sticking with the pointy end. Arya, underfoot. Horse face, stick him with the pointy end. So Arya is in the hall getting a lesson from her dancing master, Sirio. He's teaching her a very important lesson that she needs to see, not just watch and listen, but see the truth of what is happening. Uh, He tells her that the heart lies and the head plays tricks with us, but the eyes can see true. And he gives her this lesson and a bruise to go with it. We we find out at the end of this lesson that Sirio is going with uh, the family back to Winterfell on the ship, uh, and and indicates that he thinks it's just about time that she can break out Needle, finally start using a real sword for once, and that makes her very happy. But uh, just as the reader is settling into this jolly chapter, we're reminded 
what befell Ned in the previous chapter. The door is open, and Sir Marin Trant, uh, one of the Knights of the King's Guard, comes in all in white with five Lannister guardsmen. Uh, he orders uh, Arya to come along with them at her father's urging, but she and Sirio sniff it out. They're too clever, and, and Sirio asks, you know, hey, why didn't he send his own men? So, uh, Sir Marin Trant gets tired of it. He just says, hey, guys, just go get her. I'm tired of dealing with this. So, they rush to get Arya, but Sirio becomes a man of action, goes full beast mode with his wooden sword. <laughs> so he's just got this little dowel of a sword, and he's uh, beating him over the head, breaking fingers, knees, jabbing eye sockets uh, and throats. Uh, sees all indeed, does Sirio. He sees all of their weaknesses, where their armor is weak, uh, where he can poke and prod at them and make injuries, and uh, he's exploited them in seconds. From the time Arya can get to the back of the hall, uh, he has basically disabled all of the guardsmen. But Marin Trent, uh, he doesn't have these same weaknesses. He's wearing full plate metal, uh, very few weaknesses, nothing that uh, Sirio's wooden stick can get the better of. And he doggedly pursues Sirio, presumably to his end. Uh, at this point, Arya is running away. She uh, climbs through windows, out and around through a, a cellar and... Uh, she's about to head back to the Tower of the Hand, but she decides not to take the direct route to her father. She takes another path, remembering Sirio's advice to never do what they expect. Uh, he teaches her many of these little phrases, and one of them is never do what they expect. So she sees that the, set, the Tower of the Hand has been taken, So, and a dead northerner uh, decorates its steps with, with its carcass. And uh, so, so she tries to remain calm and decides she's got to keep running and go a different way. So she finds her way to the stable. She thinks, okay, maybe I'll get a horse and, and ride out. And she finds more dead northerners. Uh, uh, she finds nervous horses, and she finds Needle. And she pulls Needle out, and then she's startled by a stable boy who intends to turn her into the queen. She slays him with Needle, uh, kind of in a panic, um, and, and then uh, pulls the sword out, and he dies at her feet. It's Arya's first kill. Put a little stamp on her plane. But uh, she, she's panicking about what to do next so that she knows the gates are going to be manned. She doesn't think this horse thing is going to work. And then all of a sudden she remembers a previous journey that she had that took her outside of the castle and that there's another way out that probably won't be guarded. So she decides she's going to try that out. She, so she crosses the yard slowly and deliberately. There are people on the walls looking, spying, trying to look out for any northerners, probably have a lookout for Arya. She crosses the yard at a dead slow walk as to try not to raise any suspicion, and it's the longest walk of her life. But she makes it all the way across, and uh, then she takes some time to find her way to the monsters uh, and the paths down below the castle, and uh, finds her way uh, to the dark tunnels. And she's scared, you know, she's, uh, she's nine years old, I believe. Uh, she's scared in the dark, and uh, she gets comforted, by her memories uh, of her first trip to the crypt at Winterfell with her brothers and uh, and Sansa. And it's a warm memory uh, that, she, that she recalls, and it gives her courage and strength, and the dark no longer has control over her. And uh, that is how the chapter ends, with the reader feeling safe and secure in the idea that Arya might escape. Yeah, she is a badass little kid. She is indeed. Quite possibly... Quite possibly the most capable nine-year-old in history. Oh, easily. I don't know. I was pretty capable. <laughs> is, is she nine? <laughs> yeah, I think were you she... killing kids? <laughs> I'm not going to say. 
<laughs> Dude, statute of limitations on murder has got to be up by now. He could get to man. it right here. <laughs> so she is nine, right? I think. Yeah, nine or ten. Yeah. So she she's just. Uh, I mean, we we talk so much so much about how mature John is sometimes, and and Danny too, and uh, you know they're both young, but Ari is nine, and her reaction to her father being you know, most likely taken or dead. She doesn't know really what's happened to him is, you know, she sees dead Northerners all around. So she just kind of assumes and her reaction is to think about another way out. It's not right. crying. It's not crumbling. It's not anything that you would expect a normal adult to do. It's let's, let's use Sirio's tactics. Like how do I get myself out of here? Yeah. Right yeah. In I... Survival mode. There's no extended or prolonged thought about her dad at all it's that like she has during line. this time. Like, if I were nine years old, even as capable as I was as a nine-year-old, if something like that had just happened to me, I would be – my first priority would be finding my father so that he can get me out of there. I wouldn't even be thinking about ways of getting myself out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that doesn't even come up for her. Yeah. And and it comes back to seeing, right? Letting your eyes see. Serio's, uh, yep. Serio's. Well, presumably last lesson for Arya. Um, it's kind of interesting. I don't know whether we want to talk about this here, but you know, there's no, there's no, and Serio's blood splattered the floor. But it looks pretty dire. They talk about his uh, his wooden stick being cut in half, and he's facing a full armored uh, uh, Kingsguard member. Pretty dire for Serio. But uh, his last lesson, yes, you see, may, let your eyes see the truth. You know, don't be fooled by what your heart wants or, or anything like that. And uh, she's taken it to heart along with seemingly everything that he's taught her. What a good student. That's just yep. a solid lesson all around. We could all learn from that lesson. Yeah. Yeah, really. I really like it. Yeah, and uh, I'll be, uh, if if uh, the stars align, I'll be talking about that a little later when we talk about the John chapter. But uh, we kind of noticed a theme, or I noticed a theme uh, in this this episode of the podcast that a lot of these chapters are about young people and how they how they empower themselves and how they stay uh, stay the course and stay strong in these uh, trying times for them. And, how they uh, handle very adult. Situations. situations yeah and and for Arya, it is it it's it's uh and, and maybe this is because she's so young but it's just these re- repetitive phrases that have just been hammered home to her right just these these phrases that she can just kind of keep thinking oh this is the stimulus faster than a deer right like just kind of respond with these with these single phrases and uh kind of keeps her calm yeah just like danny's uh dragon phrases and i wonder if rob has similar phrases going through his head because we also witnessed his presumably first kill in the forest when he was defending Bran. Uh, Albeit he was quite a bit older, but he seemed very calm and collected and in the moment. Uh, Yeah. Just got to wonder if he's faking it till he makes it too. Yeah. He seems to be drawing a lot on dad. Yeah. Yeah. And Arya too, at the end of this chapter, I really loved, I really loved at the end of this chapter, you know, you get this whole kind of, helter-skelter chapter where she's running away, she's running away, there's serial fighting, um, you know, you don't know if she's going to make it out, and she's terrified in the in the dungeons or, or the, the, the tunnels or wherever she is uh, in the dark, and the, like, the last thing you really get is this warm memory of her childhood that uh, kind of reminds you of the closeness of the Stark children and uh, and how great they, you know, some of their relationships are. 
and she uses <laughs> or how that. how terrible some of them are. Well, some of them aren't, some she, of them aren't so good. <laughs> That's classic give, Big Brother stuff. Yeah, she doesn't right. give Sansa a second thought other than in yeah. her memory <laughs> of the Stark children in the crypt, how Sansa ran away screaming. So we do admire the fact that she uh, assesses the situation quickly and gets herself out of there. But she spares minimal thought for Ned and zero thought for Sansa, which is sort of disappointing, but also kind of understandable. They have uh, not been on the best of terms lately. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, My my opinion of Sansa in these chapters is... (laughs) has been well documented. Uh, But I wasn't thinking about Sansa either. I'm like, Arya, get out of there! At no point was like, you've got to find your sister. I never thought that. Yeah, it's it's hard to say what what any of us would do in her shoes. I agree with you, Matt. I would be like, find dad, figure stuff out. He will take (laughs) care of it. Um, I think that you're right, that her lack of maturity and just her general age, she wouldn't be thinking I got to save somebody in addition to myself. Yeah. You know, there's that her coming back and remembering that moment in the crypts, I think was made even a little bit more poignant by the fact that she just committed an act that she can never come back from. She just killed another person and uh, a lot of innocence had been lost there. And so having that thought about, John and Rob in the Crypts of Winterfell, whether it has a deeper meaning or not, it was kind of interesting to contrast that with what she'd just done. And, um, I, you know, this is something that uh, we're already getting inclinations that this little Arya is going to grow up awfully fast. And it started with sticking him with the pointy end. It's funny, uh, yeah, in the, in the text, you know, I, well, I was just giving her credit for remembering all of these lessons. And George has a great little bit about, just like you said, Matt, um, that she forgets every lesson that Sirio taught her in that moment and remembers only stick them with the pointy end from John. And uh, <laughs> that's, you know, the sword, the sword fighting part uh, just completely goes out the window mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, there's no technique at all. Luckily she's facing uh, an inferior opponent. That was a pretty heartbreaking scene, even though the kid was a little punk or, you know, that where he just says, take it out. That just like broke my heart. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause he's still a kid. Oh yeah. That was, that was yeah, super visceral. Visceral. Like, oh, like oh, God, reading it, it you out. could have almost, yeah, you could almost brush it off except for that very human last plea. Ooh. Yeah, mm-hmm. it reminds me of, uh, I don't know why, but when I read it, it reminded me, you guys have seen, um, oh gosh, the, the, the war movie um, where they have to go find uh, Saving Private Ryan. Ryan. Yes, yeah. uh, there's what I've been told by, by uh, someone who's a, a big historian on, on, on World War II, what is the least likely type of death in that movie the, guy, the the one where the guy comes up the, the german guy comes up to a uh, to the place where one of the americans is uh hiding out and shooting down into the street and they actually fight it out with their fists mm-hmm. and and they the one guy ends up killing the other guy with a knife right and it's i don't know if you guys have seen this but he's slowly yeah. slowly slowly oh, fighting the yeah. strength and it go the blade goes in inch you don't expect by it to inch you. by inch right just slow and just the the breath just slowly goes out of the guy. It's just a brilliantly done scene. It's one of my favorite deaths I've ever seen on film. I love it. And uh, you're gross, Scott. I know. But the well, the reason I love it is because of the the humanity of it. What he right. says, what he says, the the guy that's dying in 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 uh, Saving Private Ryan, is says, no wait 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 Let's stop, let's stop, let's stop. Let's let me, let's let me, stop, stop. No, 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 no
viel einfacher. Das Ding ist jetzt gleich vorbei. And then he dies. He's just ple pleading with. He knows the situation is over. He can't overpower this guy, and he's just pleading and saying, "Wait, wait, wait." This kid, he just says, "Oh gods, take it out." Like, no, no, this can't. No, you know, like the humanity just takes over, and I. It just reminded me of that. I'm gonna have to watch that scene later tonight now. Yeah, and the yeah. German guy just telling him, "Shh." Uh huh. Yeah. Like he's trying to almost comfort him. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. scene just. Yeah. Yeah. It goes Chilling. Yeah. I, lo I love yeah. that scene. I was so going to watch Love Actually later tonight, but I'm probably going to watch Saving Private Ryan now. Love Actually. Similar. Similar. It's a good one. <laughs> Love Such Actually. a good one. Love Actually is a good one. You know what gets me every time this time of year? Merry Christmas to everyone, by the way. It's a Christmas episode. <laughs> Happy holidays. Ho holiday episode. Happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Happy human light for my fellow humanists out there. Uh, <laughs> I celebrate Festivus. Festivus. Yeah. Got my pole up. So uh, uh, <laughs> one of the one of the one of the better holiday movies that we like around here is uh, The Family Stone. Nearly gets me every time on the tears. It's a good one. Oh, I don't think I've seen it. Oh yeah, it's a good one. Sly and the Family Stone. <laughs> no. Okay. So, uh, right. what else in this chapter? Sirio um, is a badass. That I just love reading that scene. I read it twice. Because I just love talk, seeing how Gurm describes this battle. Uh, he's, you know, disarming all these men and killing them. The one where he takes the guy's eye out, and he, Gurm describes it as a wet hole where his eye was. <laughs> the wet, red hole. It's great. Yeah, he's um, he's easily one of those characters that you just want to be one of your favorites. Too bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you, somebody put, oh, I think it was you, Matt, in the notes. Why didn't he grab a sword? Right? <laughs> it was screaming that the whole time. Laying there. There's like five Lannister guards just laying there. All of them have a sword. I know it's not your typical Bravosi sword, but just grab it, please. <laughs> Anything but your stick. You do have to wonder what happened because even if he was like the first sword of Bravoso or what have you, he was still up against a white cloak who are not in that position for their good looks, yeah, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So, yeah. It's true. Yeah. It would have been nice to see see what happened there, but. And this is the second time that we've seen a king's guard, so someone who is not supposed to have any allegiance to any one family, leading a bunch of Lannister guardsmen. Yeah. Mm. I find that very interesting. Somebody the first wearing time, course... a lion brooch. Yeah, he's got a lion brooch as well, right? Mm, that's Boris. In the oh, uh, next chapter. Oh, yeah. next chapter. Oops. Well, who knows? Maybe Marin was too. But... Well, I, <clears> he was wearing one. Spoiled something. Yeah, yeah, he was. They, they gave them all out as, as new king gifts. Got King <laughs> Joffrey now. Here's your lion, bro. <laughs> well, we should, we should probably move on, but uh, I just wanted to say, I, I kind of alluded to it in the summary. I love what, what George has done here. The, literally the last thing we just saw was Ned being taken in the throne room through deception. And... What, Ned, what what Gurm comes back with is a nice little happy training scene, right? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you're like, what's happening? What's what's going on? And you get uh, you get you know three pages of of Arya learning a nice lesson from her dancing master. As well and I don't know if it was the same for you guys, but I had a lot of dissonance reading that because I couldn't I couldn't like separate myself from what had just happened to Ned and put myself in this Aria situation. Because in the back of my mind, I just kept wondering exactly what you were saying, Scott. What happened? What, what's going on? No, I don't want to read about Aria right now. Stop this. Stop yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It was um, a great chapter. 
All right, so let's jump to Sansa, right? Don't know when a prince will come, but surely he's a gonna come for Sansa Stark. Here be looking like a toolie, and a daddy killed a wolf. Is Sansa Stark? So the elder sister. We're sticking with Starks for now. The chapter opens up uh, with Sansa three days after the attack. So going back three days. The attack on the Stark men, or on Eddard and his men that happened in the throne room, had extended past the throne room. It seemed to be a coordinated effort uh, with all around the the Red Keep. Um, Stark men were ambushed and butchered, essentially. Sansa, unfortunately, was exposed to all of the sounds of this fighting. She was locked in her room and remained unharmed and protected, but through the doorway, she could hear the sounds of the screams and the fighting and, and everything. Uh, obviously very scared. Her friend, Jane Poole, who we've been introduced to before, was later brought in with her. Um, Jane, of course, just in tears, unable to console herself. Uh, we get a little bit of motherly inclination in Sansa and in, in her saying that she put aside her tears to try to comfort her friend. So anyways, they're left like this for three days without any word from the outside as to what had happened with their father, why was all this fighting happening in the first place, nothing. But on this third day, one of the king's guards, Sir Boris Blunt, comes and takes Sansa to the council chambers, where she meets the queen, Pycelle, Littlefinger, and Varys, just the four people you really want to see. Uh, they're waiting to chat with her. Um, they do make sure she's okay and everything. And when they find out that Jane was left with her, uh, Cersei is visibly agitated and Littlefinger offers to take, quotes, Jane to her father, unquote, whatever that means. Uh, after they've taken care of that little bit of business, Cersei informs Sansa that Ned is a traitor. Uh, she presents to him the le to excuse me. She presents to Sansa the letter that Eddard had written to Stannis, and which had fallen into their hands, of course, after the butcher butchering of all the Stark men. So that she can see that Eddard was obviously trying to sow seeds of rebellion and put Stannis on the throne, rather than the rightful heir, Joffrey Baratheon. Uh, she then drops the hammer on Sansa, saying that she cannot allow the daughter of a traitor to marry her son. We then see a bit of a good cop, bad cop conversation happening with Pacell and Varys playing the parts of the bad cop, claiming, you know, very logically, this all seems to make perfect sense, that because her dad is a traitor, Sansa will obviously have that traitor's blood in her and will obviously betray uh, the the crown as well because yeah. her dad did so of course she will Sansa of course thinks this is terribly unfair and and argues a little bit um, and then Cersei ever acting the good cop role says that she wants the wedding to happen she does not want this and she believes Sansa is completely innocent and then she says that if Sansa's kin, if her family will just travel to King's Landing and swear fealty to Joffrey, it would definitely assuage some of the council's fears, and she sees no problem with the wedding happening. Sansa can still marry her beloved Joffrey, and who knows, maybe even Eddard's life could even be spared. 
So they instruct her to write letters to her family, uh, telling them as much, telling them that dad was a traitor and that they need to travel to King's Landing and swear fealty to the, the Baratheon slash Lannister crown. And um, she agrees to do that. So they tell her exactly to write, what to write, and Sansa ends up sending four letters, one to Catelyn, one to Rob, one to Hoster Tully, Catelyn's father in Riverrun, and one to Liza Aaron in the Eyrie. It's only after she gets back to her room, finding that Jane is already gone, that she realizes she never asked about Arya. Hmm. And uh, that's where the chapter ends. But one other important point that we need to discuss in this is that it is revealed in this chapter that Sansa, after Ned had told her he was shipping her back to Winterfell and breaking off her betrothal to Joffrey, had gone and told Cersei everything. She went to Cersei on her own and said, Dad's shipping me out. I don't know what to do. I love Joffrey so much. I don't want this to happen. Um, yeah, she claims to have done it out of desperation. So a big uh, reveal there, huh? Mm. I think a good place to start then might be there. Obviously, you know, Sansa didn't know the gravity of the situation between Eddard and Cersei and what had been going on. She might have known that they didn't get along and everything, but she definitely didn't know all the details and how serious this really was. Uh, so it wasn't like she was outright belligerently belligerently attempting to betray her father. But what, if any, implications do you guys think this had on what just happened with Eddard and the other Stark men being butchered? Did it have any effect on him at that point, or had uh, the ball already dropped? And was it inconsequential at that point? I don't think it had any effect. I think that knowing that Sansa went to Cersei only serves to tell us that Sansa was thinking about herself, kind of an idiot, and <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't think it had any effect on, on Cersei's plans at all. Not At least not from what we can see in the text, because the timeline uh, really revolves around Ned's actions. Yes, I would agree. It, I think what really got the ball rolling was Eddard's conversation with Cersei. Yeah. Um, Maybe Sansa's reveal kind of, I don't know, uh, gave Cersei a better idea as to Eddard's timeline. But I think what was going to happen was going to happen regardless. Yeah, agreed. I, I well, I, I, think, um, I think what kicked off the preparation was the discussion with Cersei. I think Robert's actual death is what kicked off the events. I think as soon as they knew, they had a plan in place and they executed that plan. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't think, uh, I, don't, I don't think Sansa's... Other than pissing me off, I don't think it had any effect, uh, you know, on anything. Uh, Cersei had her plan already, and uh, they were going to execute it as soon as Robert died. Yeah, it yeah. was uh, pretty frustrating. Even with my normal protective tagline of Sansa of, she's 12 yeah, I think or she's 11. 11. Or yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's very frustrating to read that. Um, and, and speaking of her being so young, how about this whole conversation with the small council? Wasn't it just hard to read that this little 11, 12 year old girl versus four of the most manipulative people in probably the whole of Westeros, these guys who just do this for a living 
and they just chew her up and spit her out. Yeah, it's uh, was it's, in his element. Oh, yeah. he loved it. Yeah, the, uh, the one of the questions uh, could come up as to you know whether that conversation or the whole exchange between them was off the cuff and in some way sincere, or if it was all planned out, if they'd already, you know, decided how they were going to act and who was maybe going to be the good cop and who was going to maybe be the bad cop. You know, I think it was, I think it was totally um, rehearsed and they knew exactly what they were doing. Completely Uh scripted. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. They they knew everything, Uh, you know, traitor's blood and this is how we're going to go about it. And we need to get her to write the letter and that's the end goal. And, uh, you know, the, the only, the only thing in that whole bit that was unscripted was the stuff about Jane <laughs> where Cersei was for a minute thrown off her game <laughs> where she's like, wait, what, what the hell Jane was mm-hmm. in the room. Does she know more than we think she knows? You know, that might hurt our, hurt our script here. Right. But uh, I got the impression the whole thing was written down. They knew how she would react and they literally gave them a script and said, memorize this. These are your lines. Yeah. And it probably was- came very naturally to them. Um, at first, uh, I thought Cersei's reaction to Jane being in the same room was like odd that she should care so much that she yeah. was worrying about that little detail. But then reading the chapter this time around, you see that Jane has a much more realistic and and appropriate reaction to the slaughter of all of the Starks. And uh, Cersei really understands sort of the diluted haze that Sansa lives in. Mm-hmm. And this, like, uh, you know, her little princess daydream and, and knows that Jane is a regular young woman who would be devastated by this entire tragedy and having her influence there might manip- or, or hurt the manipulations she's putting Sansa through. So oh, it was interesting that Cersei still has time to worry about those little details. Yeah, little Jane. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to say about the... Uh about the scripting and the uh, the traitor's blood and, and everything. They're, they're inferring that that she's in some way genetically predisposed to be treasonous, that it's been <laughs> hereditarily passed down through some sort of genetic material. So, uh, you know, these guys don't know, but in our timeline, in our world, we've decoded the human genome. And so I did a quick Google search, and there is no such thing as a traitor gene, just in case anyone was wondering. <laughs> I hope this the sarcasm in my voice was dripping enough um, <laughs> as I was recounting that part. Uh, that's interesting, though, that they haven't found a traitor gene. It amazes me that they can even there, decipher. There actually is one in plants, by the way. They call it a traitor gene. It uh, it causes the second generation of plants to fail to reproduce. No way. Yeah. What? Well, so maybe at some point a Stark mated with a plant yes somehow they pick that up let's hope so maybe you, yeah because <laughs> that would work maybe that's what all this blue rose stuff is about <laughs> um let's talk a bit about these letters that sansa was to write the motivation behind them and uh her doing it it seems to me that at least for a moment i believed for maybe a split second that things would work out for the Starks and that Sansa could write these letters and stuff would be okay until Cersei dropped the ball of, or she didn't drop the ball, but she said, have them come to King's Landing and swear fealty to Joffrey. That I was like, nope, 
Yep, yep. She's going to kill them all. Or she's going to do something to them. Um, anytime it seems like a Stark comes to King's Landing, bad things happen. I remembered Rickard and Brandon Stark. Uh, they came to King's Landing at the summons of King Ares and were both slaughtered. Uh, Ned is in trouble now. Um, I have no doubt that having the rest of the Stark family come to King's Landing would end in a in a similar fate. Yeah, I'd say it's a not thinly at all veiled threat or a not veiled at all threat uh, that says, come do that, or, you know, Sansa's at our at our whim and mercy. But at the She's, same time, I don't think she expects them to come. Right. But but that's the option she lays out to them. The Sansa at this point is definitely a hostage. And um, I think, I think, you know, we're going to see that Rob is going to come. Um, and I think that's exactly what she wants. And I think she would kill them. Those are just my thoughts. Yeah, whether he's not coming whether, to swear fealty, though. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, and I think even if they were, she would kill them somehow. Maybe it wouldn't be outright and obvious that Lannisters are killing Starks. Maybe it would be a paid assassin on the road to King's Landing. But um, I think I, she would kill them all. Well, the whole, mm. the, whole, the whole thing is lip service. I mean, what she, tells, what she tells Sansa is that if they come and swear fealty, then we can still do the wedding. Like, no, that's not mm. happening. Like, it's yep. fairy tale land. Um, so, yeah, I mean, clearly there's no, there's no going, there's no turning back for the Starks with Cersei, I don't think. But yeah, I don't think it's a summoning at all. It's clearly just a message. And having Sansa write the letters is part of the message that, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, Sansa is a hostage now. Cersei in charge. We're coming for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised that Cersei didn't somehow manage to get into the letters that they had Arya also, because that, that would be an even stronger message, right? Even, even though they don't have her, um, I'm surprised they didn't get her to write that. It's true. We're starting to see that sometimes how good you are doesn't matter. <laughs> In fact, we've, we've, we haven't even started to see that. We just know it by now. This isn't no fairy tale. Yeah. A lot of, seems the manipulators, at least for now, can come up on top. The spiders and the backdoor's ears, to borrow Scott's phrase. and Backdoor's ears? Doors ears. Wow. Yeah, people, people who are backdoorsy, look it up. Uh, they can they can win. <laughs> so I, I did want to say just briefly in Sansa's defense, make that t- twice in two episodes now. Listen up, everybody. Uh, in Sansa's defense, I, I, I'm not sure that she knows she's being played. In fact, I'm pretty sure she doesn't know she's being played. Sure. But I think she does if, – if if she believes that she can do this letter thing and and go along with it and behave and, and, and actually marry Joff, that she thinks she can turn this around for her family. She right. – I don't think she's right, but she believes that. And and so she does have a pure motivation. It's not – it's not just saving her skin um, – you know, it's it's not even just I want to be I want to be queen. It's if I do this, maybe I can convince Joffrey to to uh, you know go be lenient on my family. Yeah, she even talks about maybe they can just exile Dad across the across the sea, and then he can come back in a few years and take the black or whatever. Um, yeah, good point. She does display some of those. Uh, I don't know. I found it very caddish qualities, motherly qualities. Uh, I, I thought it was very cool how she put aside her tears to comfort her friend. Um, you know, stuff like that. That would be little quick, qualities in this quick, team. Though. She what? 
she got pretty sick of it pretty quick. Oh yeah, she got sick of it, but <laughs> she, she did. didn't let it show. But yeah, like, I think she showed some. Uh, maybe it's misguided and or, or whatever. And, and and Brooke, I think it was your note that says that she's not dealing with it well. That she doesn't understand what, and so she's not dealing with it well. I think she's showing a little bit of stark strength also. Um, you know, she was raised to be in court, and she's going to go about this in the way that she's been taught, and she kind of leans on that, right? Yeah, she she uh, very similar to Arya and leaning on what she's been taught. Yep. Um, but she, you know, she even made that decision when uh, Ser Boros came to fetch her that she was going to act like a lady, and she complimented him as he came in and and all of that stuff, and that's kind of the the little bits of. Stark strength, as Scott calls it, and I've even called it courage before. Maybe a different form of courage that uh, that Sansa's exhibited a couple different times throughout. Res- the resolve, maybe. Yeah, we covered Sansa then. Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, next, uh, oh, we've got John, and talking about John is John's girlfriend, Brooke Bentham. <laughs> Take it away. I wish. <laughs> where we're going up north, where the winter's cold and the icicles bloom like the bluest rose. We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf. He's John Snow. All right. So we open with the discovery of the body that was previously attached to the black hand that Ghost brought to John when we last left them. Uh, or rather bodies of two black brothers who left ranging with Benjamin Stark nearly six months ago. The Lord Commander leads the whole CSI operation on the scene, and it looks like one of the brothers, Jaffer Flowers, was nearly beheaded, perhaps by the axe of the other dead black brother, Othor, who was infamous for carrying an axe. So it, it looks like maybe one hit the other. Whatever the manner of their death, their bodies are now nearly white, their hands are completely black, their eyes are sapphire blue, and no animals except for ghosts will even come near them. So the CSIs are just about to wrap up the case as a wildling attack within the last day or so when little craven Sam Tarly speaks up and totally grishens them. If anybody watches CSI... (laughs) You will remember Grisham, and he is always right. So he points out that the blood in their bodies is dry and old. There isn't even a spill of it from ghosts gnawing one of the dude's hands off, as there would have been had the brothers died within the last day. But at the same time, it's odd that the bodies haven't begun to decompose and that no animals have scavenged them. Uh, The possibility of decomposition is there because it is unseasonably warm uh, north of the wall at this time of year. So much so that uh, the Lord Commander is actually sweating. Uh, So... This is this is catching in everyone's mind, and all of the rangers start listening to Sam when he logically points out that there should have been a ton of blood around where they died, but there's nothing. Then someone points out that Othor and Jaffer didn't actually have blue eyes when they were alive. So then somebody else sensibly suggests that they burn the corpses. But no, <laughs> the Lord Commander wants Meister Eamon to take a look so they drag the bodies back to the castle on little papooses because none of the animals will go near them 
Uh, when they get there, the news of Robert's death has finally reached the wall. Uh, apparently, uh, Grandmaster Picellus sent a raven to Maester Eamon. When John finds out that Ned has been in prison for treason, he's totally shocked, uh, devastated. But he's also not completely disbelieving. He has an inner voice reminding him and us that Ned fathered a bastard, just in case you forgot for a second that Jon Snow is a bastard. So Ned's honor is in pristine. So the Lord Commander tells Jon not to get all riled up about affairs that are no longer his concern. But of course, Jon is worried about Ned and his sisters. So he actually thinks about his siblings, which is nice. So further, when Sir Alistair makes fun of John for being not just a bastard, but the bastard of a traitor, John attacks Alistair with a dagger, trying to blind the man by slashing at his eyes, which I think is maybe a lack of self-control on John's part. His mm -hmm. friends, including Sam, stop him, and he and Ghost get sent to their room for the evening. But of course, what is a zombie chapter without a zombie attack? And it is a good one. Othor has risen from the storeroom uh, where they were keeping the bodies. And he has killed the guard at John's door and moved on to the Lord Commander's sleeping chamber, which is fairly deliberate. And also Othor's hood was up on his black cloak. So he is either a vain zombie or he is a zombie with some, I don't know, intelligence. So like some some human behaviors left to him hard to say anyways john and ghost end up tearing him up and they burn the corpse and uh we learn that the lord commander sleeps in the buff so it's it's really exciting <laughs> and that's the end of the chapter um before we get going uh there's one little detail that i forgot to mention when the lord commander tells john that Ned has been in prison for treason. I really found his initial reaction to be interesting in that the Lord Commander's like, well, we got to get him up on the wall. <laughs> like, we can't let him be, you know, kept in prison down in King's Landing or execute or anything. We got to get that guy up here. He's going to be a great addition. Also, when he found <laughs> out that Robert was dead, he wasn't like particularly oh. sad or worried about the affairs of the realm. He was like, ah, oh, it's too bad that uh, your mother, Catelyn, and John is quick to uh, correct him, saying that Catelyn is not John's mother, took a Tyrion prisoner because Tyrion could have spoken to the new King Joffrey and uh, um, advocated for the needs of the wall. He's like, oh, that's too bad. And he was like, well, whatever. Unaware so, that most of these circumstances would have never come to pass had she not taken Tyrion. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you're totally right. Anyways, uh, it's great that George still, he keeps the affairs of the wall at the wall. The Lord Commander is only worried about how all of these events are going to affect his men, which... Uh, yeah, it's interesting. And can you blame him when you see the decrepit state that the Night's Watch is in? I mean, it's no wonder that it's almost like every Mormon sighting we get, he's talking about how shorthanded they are. It must be just constantly on his mind. Uh, well, and, just... and given the events previously happening in this chapter, <laughs> he's got added concern. Every single one of those guys knows that these deaths were not normal. 
that there's something yeah. supernatural going on. So as as normally stressed out as he is, like, damn, the wall's getting kind of decrepit. Now he's like, holy fucking shit, something's right. coming for us. <laughs> and he already knows that, as as Riker pointed out to him, they don't have enough people to go on regular rangings and patrol the wall and... They don't have that. And if a big battle is coming, they need experienced leaders who can do that. The best people they've got are people who are were sent to the wall because they supported the Targaryens during Robert's Rebellion, the Alistair Thorns and the Jeremy Rikers and these types. The rest are are, you know, frankly, probably not. Yeah, they're not, you know, leaders for in in major battles, which I think he's starting to expect, whereas Eddard Stark is a hero of the realm. And he's thinking, man, if I could get him up here leading my men, whew, that could help. Yeah. John has a has an interesting reaction to that, though. Uh, it's just one line. Um, I don't know if we want to spend much time on it, but it's just one line. But he he says uh, it's like the thought of Ned was strangely uncomfortable, I think is, is how it says it, um, that, that John doesn't. He doesn't like the idea of Ned coming to the wall. Kind of interesting. Yeah, he definitely thought that it would be a downgrade for his father, and he's right. Well, I, I took it a different way. Oh, how did you take it? Well, um, that that John has carved carved a niche for himself here, and having Ned come in changes that world a lot for John. That's a, a previous relationship coming to affect his new world. And mm-hmm. I don't sure, sure he doesn't want him there for those other reasons. It's a big change for Ned and a, a big step down from what he's been doing. But I think it's it's also John is John is growing in this role at the Night's Watch, and Ned coming there would be weird. You know, it's it's like the I put in my notes somewhere, but it's it's like uh, when when you've got an old friend that comes to town to uh, to to where you've moved, and you've got this new group of friends, and they're kind of different than than your other friend and. You fit in differently, and now you're the funny guy in the group instead of, you know, the cool guy in the group or, uh, you know, whatever. Like, uh. this other friend comes with all this different knowledge about who you are and how you should be interacting, and it's just awkward. You ever had that happen? Just me? Yep. All right. Nope, for no, sure. No, I have. Because um, I have so or many Or literally, friends. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you do. Or literally when your dad, like, comes and hangs out with you and your friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's maybe a better example happen. than the one I painted. <laughs> Uh, but oh, uh, you can see the conflict. Uh, I just found the passage. Um, that was a thought and strangely uncomfortable, John said. It would be a monstrous injustice to strip him of Winterfell and force him to take the black. So that goes along with what Brooke was saying. And yet if it meant his life, dot, 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 dot. So yeah, he's uncomfortable. He doesn't want his dad put in that situation. As Scott said there could be those reasons of just kind of it being kind of awkward in a way. But if it meant Dad being saved, then yeah, he could. Oh he yeah, could he's not gonna—he's not gonna pull a Sansa or anything and like put his own needs above anyone else's. But uh... Scott, she's twelve. Oh right, sorry. <laughs> I just think had John's to say mature it. Fourteen. I had to say it. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, these whites, and you alluded to it already, Brooke. But their intelligence level and their awareness level—kind of creepy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, looking for these aren't your normal zombies. Yeah, yeah, to to more of their behaviors to see if it adds up into some sort of, you know, um, I don't know, pattern or or 
mode of operation that these guys have because right now it's like throwing a wrench into what we know about zombies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, a a they're the fast zombies from Twenty Eight Days Later and a bunch of other films. They're not the slow zombies of, uh, you know, of of Romero's day and, and a Walking Dead fame. Um, Bingo. But uh, but they're also yeah they're also intelligent. They're they're reasoning somehow. The guy knows how to open a door. Right. He, he knows. knows to put his hood up. Yeah. Um, so here's my question. When they were just laying out and being studied by the, the CSI investigation, as you put it, Brooke, um, <laughs> were they were they somehow just kind of in a comatose state? And maybe nighttime awakes them or were they kind of playing, you know, like some sort of possum, like playing dead a little bit? Uh, does this go to their intelligence? Were they like faking it at that point? Um, until nighttime when they could rise up and strike? Or was it something where, you know, the light switch is turned on when darkness falls or something? I don't have any evidence, but I think it's the latter. I, I think I think they're, they're – I think the others – again, it's just a theory. I have no idea. I, I don't know anything. Yeah, I don't think we else. get any evidence. But, but, but I, I think the others are active at night and the whites are active when the others are active and they shut down during the day. But uh-huh. I, I don't have any – that's just I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's just what we've seen so far. Yeah, no, just I, I the the other I just wanted to point one more thing to uh, just kind of their sophistication. Um, you know, the guy doesn't have any weapons. Maybe they don't know how to use weapons. I don't know, but he doesn't have any weapons. Uh, but he's he understands the weaknesses of men. He shoves his hand into John's throat to kill him. Right, like. Like he knows that that's one way that he can, without weapons, can actually inflict mortal harm to him, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, that part just gave me the heebie-jeebies. But yeah, the more you know, it's probably yeah. not sanitary to have a dead person's fingers down your throat. Yeah, necrotic flesh. <laughs> yeah. Although, I, although was I the only one that was saying, John, bite him, bite down, oh. bite those fingers off? Yeah. Uh, I think that's the last thing I would have done. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, just let them go down. At, at least you would have got black powder in your mouth instead of blood. <sighs> but that whole scene, was it not just breathtaking for you guys? Like, yeah. I was scared to death. Oh, yeah. The it's first time reading through that. How the was... written word can get me so adrenaline rushed. Right. I had uh, to, like, stand up short. and stretch after the first time I read that because, like, <laughs> I was so tense. Like, Check under your bed. (laughs) Yeah, I do that anyways. (laughs) Mostly for children. (laughs) Uh, Side note, when I went to Comic-Con in 2007, I saw the greatest panel ever. Max Brooks, the author of World War Z, interviewed Mm. George Romero. It was insane. It was so good. Wow. Oh. Yeah. That would be good. Once in a lifetime experience. Some legend shit right there. Hell yeah. Anyways. Uh, good job, good. Sam. Do we give Sam a pat on the ass for his uh, oh, yeah. quality? Let's take a couple minutes and talk about him. Big moment yeah. stepping up. Yeah, for sure. I especially appreciated that the Lord Commander, I don't know, patted him on the head, equivalent <laughs> to. It was like, Sam, you may be fat, but you're smart. Right. I mentioned in my notes, it's all any of us can aspire to. Yeah. Fat, that's a, that's a great day for me. <laughs> so what's on my business cards? Yeah, but well, smart. <laughs> and you know, those are two qualities that are just not very common on the wall. Smarts True. and, and weight. <laughs> um, how has have, he not lost weight yet? 
Right, right. Uh, um, yeah, great job, Sam. And a credit to John uh, for looking out for the welfare of his friend. John didn't know when he went over to get Sam out from behind those horses where Sam was kind of quasi hiding from looking at the dead people, you know. He didn't know that Sam would come upon these bodies and suddenly have this brilliant CSI revelation. All John was trying to do was to to toughen up his friend a little bit, and not in a mean, malicious way, but just try to, you know, get him over some of his fears and his uncomfortableness with situations. And so he's just trying to be a, a good friend uh, by getting him out of there, getting him out of his comfort zone, and getting him past some of the stuff that scares him. And by doing so... They actually uh, came upon a, a rather important discovery. So I well, appreciate I, the type of friendship that John exhibits towards Sam. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, he, they, the the idea is that he was sent to be Amon's eyes, and that Amon sent him. Um, but I think that well, yeah. that seems faulty. Any one of them could go back and tell Amon what they saw, uh, unless right. Amon sees some sort of special observational qualities in Sam. But, but uh, even then, Sam weird. was hiding behind the horse. Oh, yeah, true. He wasn't, yeah. he wasn't checking things out. He yep. was off kind of hiding and not wanting to look at the body. Yeah, and, yeah. John encouraged yeah. him for sure. I just think his presence there is weird. Right, sure. Uh, we should probably move on, timing and such. All right, uh, so our next chapter is uh, Scott again talking about five, Brand. Six, seven, Brandon Stark, won't you come back down from that tower your mind's been flying from? Legs don't work, but they don't really need to work when that third eye's showing you new ways unexplored. And the summer's gonna come, you know it's gonna come, summer's gonna come, and boy, you're gonna fly away. Yeah, so uh, bear with me. This chapter's a little weird. Um, it's it, it, it deals a lot with Bran's thoughts, which jump around, and so my summary will jump around too. I'll, I'll try to try to make it as tight as possible. Um, so it starts out with Bran uh, watching... The Car Starks arrive with 300 horse and 2,000 men. They are the last of the major houses to arrive. And uh, Sock and Sus Mapas, Mapas for the Car Starks. Um, you can see why they're the last people to arrive. Uh, if you look at Winterfell, which is kind of in the dead center of the north, uh, the Car, car Hold, which is where the Car Starks are from, is way over on the right uh, of the map, kind of uh, hidden in between some trees there. It's basically, besides maybe Bear Island, which you'd have to go by ship and stuff and then go through the woods, is probably the farthest away. So, so they're the last to arrive. There are some others they note that are going to meet them down on the road um, in the Barrow Lands and uh, from White Harbor. They're just going to meet them on the, on the King's Road as they travel south. But they're the last to arrive. In total from the north, uh, they've gathered uh, 12,000 men, around 3,000 of which are armored horse. Uh, they do note that very few of them are knights. We'll talk a little bit about more of that later. Uh, the winter town outside of Winterfell is full to bursting. Um, and if you if you think back to kind of feudal history uh, in our world, uh, similarly the the peasants, uh, the uh, more plebeian society, I suppose, uh, they are more dependent on the lords in their castles. Uh, and what this winter town is is a place outside of Winterfell where all the people of the North can gather uh, to Winterfell's protection and greater resources. Uh, but right now, it's serving as lodging for soldiers. And Bran wants to go out and experience it, but he's basically told, nope, you can't, it's too dangerous, you can't protect yourself, it's, there's just too much going on. Poor Bran, he's sad about that. We're also told that Bran now rides in a basket on Hodor's back. Uh, Hodor doesn't seem to mind. Hodor, 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 Hodor. 
<laughs> and uh, he uh, sometimes forgets to duck when he goes through doorways. But other than that, it's uh, it seems like a mutually beneficial relationship. And uh, <clears throat> Bran has Hodor take him to the Godswood. Bran's been going to the Godswood a lot lately, and uh, to to kind of be by himself and and talk to the gods and uh, you know pray for pray for his family and such. And uh, while he's there, he reflects on on Rob, who's you know gathering this army to leave, um, on his brother Rickon and how he's responding to. Everyone kind of abandoning him. Uh, who could maybe go in Rob's stead? And also, kind of his mind wanders to how Rob is uh, feasting with his bannermen on on different nights, and and how they keep uh, continuing to test him in different ways, including in a great example uh, where the Great John, uh, Great John Umber, uh, whose uh, whose uh, castle is uh, is north of Winterfell, there one of the northernmost castles, is it just a giant of a man? And he challenges John uh, for not allowing him to uh, go ahead of the Glovers in battle, and uh, starts toward him threateningly, uh, drawing his sword. And uh, Greywind jumps up and separates two of uh, the Great John's um, uh, Great John Umber's fingers from his hand. And uh, Rob comments that surely the Great John was not bearing his steel against his liege lord, but just wanted to cut his meat. And the great John, to his credit, uh, approves now of, of Rob and says, Your meat is bloody tough. And uh, a great scene in the in the, the TV series as well, done well, uh, if you're a fan of that. But uh, slowly, basically, just just like in this example, slowly Rob kind of bends all of these uh, all of these lords, all these vassals to his will. Um, you know, this 15-year-old kid, and he's, uh, he's kind of bending them to his will and getting what he wants out of them. Uh, Bran notes that they received Sansa's letter that we, we heard her writing, um, informing of the treason. She doesn't mention San or she doesn't mention Arya in the letter at all, and Rob is just furious in general about the letter and what it means. Uh, Bran is then at the, again, we're back in the, in the Weirwood with, with Bran, and he's asking the gods to watch over Rob for his journey south. And just then he's interrupted by Osha. Osha, if you remember, is one of the wildlings that, uh, attacked them when they were out in the woods. Uh, she's the one that uh, they let live uh, in exchange for her loyalty, although they don't trust her fully. She's kind of uh, shackled up. But she indicates that the gods aren't going to help Rob in the south, that he's going the wrong way. Uh, she also assures him that giants do exist uh, and that she knows that there is stuff going on in the north that needs attention and asks Bran to pass that information on to Rob. Uh, but that evening, Bran instead hosts the Karstark uh, sons at dinner uh, as Rob is hosting a war council. And at dinner, Bran is reminded of just how broken he is. A theme in this chapter is how broken Bran feels, how uh, how how he feels that he's been uh, just abandoned, uh, and also how broken he is. And he just keeps telling Lewin that he wants to be a knight or a sorcerer and learn magic. Lewin suggests he could be a maester. Wah, wah. So, <laughs> as Rob is leaving, he bestows the order uh, the the uh, order of Winterfell on Bran. Uh, says that he's now in control, and he promises to return with their father when the fighting is done. And Bran sits on Osha's advice, doesn't share that uh, Rob should be marching north instead of south, and uh, everyone leaves Winterfell, and Bran laments his choice not to share that information. And that is the end of the chapter. So, quite a bit going on through Bran's, Bran's brain. We can start, I guess, with the uh, something we, we mentioned before. Uh, I think Brooke brought it up earlier in the call, or in the on the cast. 
that uh, Rob is is really kind of faking it till he makes it. Uh, he's he's just kind of hanging on by a thread, trying to remain composed. We've talked about how Danny uh, in previous chapters, how Danny is this way too. She feels like she's very rattled, and that it shows to everyone. But everyone's kind of impressed, and and they're you know she's making it work. Well, Rob's kind of doing the same thing, and this scene with the great John is is a uh, is just a great example of that. This huge towering giant of a man, they say he's as big as Hodor and wider, uh, is just coming at him with a sword, and he just sits there, doesn't move a muscle, and has Grey Wind uh, do do his fighting for him. Um, Amazing control. Whew. Yeah, uh, again, the wolves are special. Yeah, definitely. Like, how do you train a dog or wolf just to bite off the tip of a man? Not how go do you for com- the jugular. Yeah, right? how do you how do you communicate with your wolf just to slightly wound them, not mortally wound them? Like, it's really great. Also, if, if you think about it, there's so many ways that Rob could have totally effed up this position. One, he could have not called the Bannerman at all. Two, he could have just sat in his Warden of the North throne and, and made a, a a happy little comfortable life for himself. Uh, three, he could have let somebody else make all of the decisions, aka the the great um, uh, the great John Umber, like somebody else more experienced, more qualified. But he's really taken responsibility, uh, taken initiative. And, uh, yeah, is, is doing a remarkable job uh, as far as, mm, I guess, emulating Ned. Yeah, that's what it comes back to is, is he's like, this is how Dad did it, so this mm-hmm. is how I got to do it. And yeah. I don't know how, but I just got to do it. Mostly. So, yeah. I think he takes I better counsel than Ned does, though. He listens to people like he uh... – I'm impressed. I'm really impressed by Rob. Yeah. Well, he's also made some some of his own personal decisions, too, that I don't see so much of Ned's influence in, um, such as keeping Bran close with him, making sure that Bran is there learning from Rob, just as Rob learned from Ned. Ned. Um, yeah. Also, not discounting Bran, not, not dismissing him because he's a cripple now, but definitely treating him like the next heir. So, as yeah. opposed to the four-year-old Rickon, I, I guess I mean credit credit to him for doing it, but I don't know that he's got a lot of alternatives either. Uh, no, well, no, but he could just be. Yeah, he could make it not, less of a priority. Yeah, yeah, and also not have anybody follow, um, you know, in his place yeah. holding the right. north. Um, and he he knows that you know he's he's going south, and there's a chance he might not come back and. That's also very mature of him too to 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 accept that fact and make preparations for it. Yeah, yeah. they kind of they kind of talk all the time in this chapter about Rob Rob the Lord, and I think they've mentioned it in other chapters too. Rob the Lord versus you know Rob his brother, um, mm-hmm. you know, and Rob the Lord would never admit that he's not coming back. Uh, or sorry, Rob the Lord would never admit that, but Rob his brother, yeah, he's he's scared and he knows, and he's trying to prepare. Yeah, what's up with little Rickon? Holy cow. I love Rickon. I love that Shaggy Dog is like just his wolfy equivalent. Yeah, just this little psycho. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we talked about Arya being the uh, the most composed nine-year-old in history, but I think little Rickon is the physically strongest four-year-old in history. 
They talk about Having him actually people. swinging an iron sword at people in the crypt. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't think about that. Just be a little toddler. Yeah, I'm not buying it. Maybe it was a little sword. <laughs> those little those little iron swords that the Kings of Winter used to used to wield. Yeah, you know. Had uh, a vertically challenged king back in the day, and it was his. Yeah. You know, we, we're joking about it, but you might be on to something. Maybe that's some sort of indication that Rickon, there's more to Rickon than we we see who knows I, maybe I swords both... maybe iron swords as they get old and rust maybe they get lighter i don't know anything about metallurgy or any of that crap so uh, stop it with your science it's i don't magic. know i'm, I'm i have no idea Rick, it is magic all right <laughs> i want to believe that so i'll go with it and just that kind of feral personality could mm. be an indicator as to you know how rick gonna play out yeah because yeah. young kids act out for sure and they throw tantrums but typically they get over them and want comfort at the end of the day, right? Rickon's, like, having none of that. He's just angry. Well, he's having none of it, but he also gets none of it. So he doesn't doesn't get any of that. Like, you you just said, at the end of the day, they want comfort. Uh, Toddlers need reassurance that someone is in control and that someone is there to protect and set the rules and boundaries for them. Uh, And Rickon doesn't get any of that. At least we're we're not in we're not it's not indicated to us that he does, and so the lashing out is his only option. That's kind of all he can do. Yeah, for as much attention as Rob pays to Bran, it appears that he doesn't pay to Rickon. Yeah, he has no idea what to do with him, and I'm sure you know they don't talk about it. I'm sure somebody's watching him and stuff, and they're not just like turning him loose or whatever. But just yeah, forgotten about him. <laughs> he's not getting much emotional investment, I don't think, which is sad. It's as a parent, it's it is. Uh, what else we got? Um, we talked a little bit about how Rob draws his strength, I think, from his, from his dad and his experience in that. Oh, uh, what's wrong with the girl? She's lost her wolf. It was a nice little bit. Did you guys like that? Yeah, I liked it. This was, uh, sorry, uh, a little more detail. Uh, in Sansa's letter, um, she doesn't mention Arya, and Rob says, after he finishes reading it, what's wrong with the girl? And Bran just says she's lost her wolf. Hmm. That's his, that's his answer. That, that that's ruined her or something that she can't cope because she doesn't have her wolf from the mouth sure. of babes. Uh, I liked seeing the appearance of a uh, head of a house who was a lady mage Mormont. Yeah. I'm excited to learn more about her. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, uh, gives us a little insight into the Mormont family. You know, um, her brother is Jayor who is the head of the night's watch. And that would make her nephew, Jorah, who is exiled. And so with all of them gone, uh, she took over as head of the house. I thought it was interesting that she's she's married. She's got kids. Yeah. Or she was married at some time. Yeah. Interesting that she stayed in House Mormont, though, after marrying, right? Usually, you know, Catelyn Tolley. She becomes a Stark. She moves to Winterfell and so on and so forth. But um, Lady Mormont stays in uh, stays at Bear Island. So yeah. kind of an interesting story, and I'm interested to learn more about her. I like the Mormont family in general. Uh, I think they're very interesting. They, uh, again, Sak and Susmapas, if you look at Bear Island to the upper left of the north, um, that's where they live and just on that island and uh, kind of a very wild place to live. And I, I like their family a lot. Mm-hmm. It'll be, like you said, Matt, great to learn more about her. Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, shall we move on to our final chapter, Daenerys? Oh, yeah, that's me. Let's do Brookie, it. take her away. Silver hair and purple eyes, always on the go. Kicking with the sun and stars, call him Cal Drogo. She knows just where she gotta go and won't be tarrying. Look out, Westerosa comes the nearest Targaryen. All right, so in this chapter, Danny is all over trying to get Drogo to mount an attack on the Seven Kingdoms, even bringing it up mid-coitus. Drogo is having none of that since the Dothraki hate the ocean, as they should, because the ocean is the worst. <laughs> Freshwater lakes are nothing. No salt lakes either. Well, none of that. They are disgusting. Uh, Agreed. <laughs> I still don't believe you. I haven't seen it. Though. It's terrible. Don't okay. go. It's, Anyone yeah, listening don't. to this podcast, do not go to the Great Salt Lake. It's disgusting. Yeah. If you smell something, it's the Great Salt Lake. Something terrible and rank, it's probably the Great Salt Lake. Carry um on. so yeah, Danny's having some trouble convincing Drogo that it is a worthy endeavor to grow across go across the ocean. And so Danny asks Jorah to try and convince Drogo. But Jorah counsels Danny to be patient and to not make the same mistake that her brother did. Uh, he then distracts her with a trip to the market where they we um, we get some chewy, delicious descriptions of wares and people and who come to uh, Bay's Dothrak to sell in the eastern and western markets. So Jorah scoots out of there to go collect their mail and pregnant Danny goes wine tasting. So the merchant selling wines from the Seven Kingdoms originally mistakes Danny for a Khaleesi of Dothraki origin, but when he finds out that she's actually Daenerys Targaryen, he gets super grovelly and insists Danny take a cask of special wine that he pulls from the back, a crisp, dry red from the Arbor, which is an island in the southwest of Westeros. But... Before he can hand it over, Jorah magically reappears and demands that the merchant taste the wine himself. The wine is, of course, poison, and the merchant tries to book it out of there, but Jorgo, one of Danny's um, warriors in her cause, lassoes the merchant with his whip and takes him down. Jorah later tells Danny that he knew something was sour when he got a letter from Illyrio addressed to Viserys telling him that Robert had put out um, a bounty um, and would reward uh, anyone who could bring Danny's head with lands and lordship, but it had to include her unborn child as well. So Danny is, of course, very upset by this news and finds it ironic that Robert now owes Drogo a lordship. That's uh, uh, for killing Viserys. Um, Viserys. But then she does something really interesting and unprompted. Uh, Just by her own gut feeling, she has Jorah light a fire in the brassiere and then leave. And even though it's very hot out, um, and she puts her three dragon's eggs into the fire in the brassiere. She hopes they aren't ruined, but she knows that there is some kind of connection between dragons and fire and hopes that putting the eggs in the fire is going to result in something, a revelation or anything. We're actually not privy to what she's expecting, but this is what she does. Nothing cool actually happens, but Danny afterwards does feel invigorated, or as I like to call it, dragon wakey, 
at the thought of any harm coming to her baby. So as it turns out, Drogo is also invigorated by the thought of harm coming to his unborn child. And when he finds out what happened in the market, he vows in like a really poetic way to lead his Kalisar across the poison waters, to kill all the men in their iron suits, to rape their women, and to make slaves of their children. Totally reasonable. Uh, he'll gift his son with the Iron Throne, and he swears before the stars that it will happen in his lifetime. So some pretty serious promises. And the chapter ends with the wine merchant getting tied naked behind Danny's horse. And no harm will come to him so long as he can keep up with Danny. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention, during the whole kerfuffle with the wine merchant and the poison cask of wine, Danny gets pushed over and almost falls onto her stomach, but she gets caught by one of her handmaidens, which is nice. That is nice. Yeah. Will you? Will you? Can we tr- please try to make more of an effort to use the word kerpuffle? <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you. I'm interested that sure. all of a sudden now, after all the more you know uh, public service announcements we've been giving on keeping your baby safe, now she's worried about falling on the baby. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. So Jora kind of. Uh, told Danny, you know what, don't worry about it. I'm just going to go pick up the mail. And she's like, I'll come with you. And and he's like, no, no, I got it. And Danny (laughs) was literally like, hmm, that's curious. So you got to wonder if Jorah was off perhaps communicating, you know, however he does with, because we know that he's in communication with Varys Mm -hmm. in Westeros. You got to wonder if, if, if that's what he was off doing giving a report on Danny. Um, You got to wonder if he was receiving information that there was a bounty out on Danny's head and tucking it away so that he could collect on it. And you also got to wonder if he stopped the wine merchant from giving Danny the poison wine because he's the one who wanted to kill Danny. Like, where is Jorah at in this game? He seems to really go ahead. I was going to say that is the big puzzle for me is one of those two questions. Either he truly is caring about Daenerys at this point or he's looking out for Jorah and he wants to collect on some of this stuff. Could he be doing both? Hear me out. So uh, he continues to feed Varys information. If anybody does succeed, you know, he can he can say that he had a huge part in it. Uh, he continues to ride the Khaleesi train as well, because if she succeeds, he can be a huge part of it. And so he's just kind of playing it out a little bit longer. More more time, you know, keeping her protected and not dead. Uh, gives him more time to kind of keep feeding various information and get on his good side. Uh, keeping her alive lets her continue to grow, see if she's going to be the horse that he wants to ride, figuratively, of course. I'm not talking about mounting the world or anything. Um, but maybe. But maybe, I guess. Um could he could he just be playing it out and playing the long game? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and it's a good distinction to make that at least the original pardon he was seeking um was stipulated upon him not killing Danny, but just on spying on her. Adversaries. Yeah. Um so it's important to remember that. Who knows what the if he received some sort of communication when he was going out to get the mail, if that changed things or whatever. But the original stipulation was he was going to spy solely. He wasn't tasked with taking them out eventually. Yeah, mm-hmm. 
I, I proposed that uh, that idea to be devil's advocate. I actually think he's just on Danny's side now. Well, it certainly looks like uh, I, I really like your your theory of him just playing both sides until one of them is victorious. And then he'll join that one. But when we first met Jorah, he was still dressing like he was a lord of Bear Island. Mm-hmm. He was desperate to get back to Westeros. But now he's got a pretty good life. He's part of Danny's Kaz. He is an advisor to a Khaleesi. He's probably got a sweet tent. He's got a. <laughs> it mentions that he dresses in uh, Dothraki yeah, clothing too. At least exactly. In, at yeah, least so in he's kind of see. embraced the culture a little more. Maybe he's he'd be happy making a home with Dothraki now. So, be interesting to see what his end game is. Yep. Yeah, for sure. More on that later, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, yeah, so what's up with putting the dragon eggs in the fire? Oh. <laughs> well, that's weird. What Making could she breakfast. possibly be hoping for? Yeah, she wants a good meal. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know what she's hoping for, unless it's that she's somehow... I mean, she, she even says at the end, they're just stones now. What was I thinking, right? Like, implying that she's hoping there's life in there somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, you sit on eggs to hatch them for other animals, right? Other birds and stuff. Maybe she's hoping that the, the warmth will, I don't know. Why didn't she just sit on the eggs then? Good point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why put them in the fire? <laughs> yeah. She's overcome by these these sudden thoughts and feelings that come to her. Remember Just what feels, really yeah. strengthened her, you know, at the be- on the onset of her marriage to Khal Drogo was that that vision slash dream she had of 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 dragons and such, and it just seems like these things just kind of come to her um, from where we don't know. Uh, but things are certainly coming up, Danny. Now it only took an assassination attempt, and now she has Brogo <laughs> <laughs> rearing and ready to go, uh, getting on a boat, crossing the ocean, and raping some women for her. That's nice. <laughs> She's like, thanks, Slaving wine seller. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate you trying to kill me. It got hubby to see my way of thinking. It does yeah. kind of work out though. It's like, it's like I don't know. Your parents, you have a beater car, and and your parents are worried about your safety in that beater car, and then you actually Going get in an accident. They're like, let's just buy you a a safer vehicle, and you're like, yes, that worked out great. <laughs> sure, I broke my collarbone and shattered my pelvis, but. Check out my Sunfire. Uh, Chick stig scars. Your <laughs> Sunfire. I can't believe you went with Sunfire. That's awesome. That's the car my parents purchased me. <laughs> they realized I needed a safe vehicle. It's uh, all right. <laughs> I didn't know Sunfire screamed safety. Oh, I guess well, they did in 1998. <laughs> I guess, uh, yeah. It it really comes down to what was the car you were driving before? Yeah, I, I, I wasn't. I wasn't. I didn't manipulate my parents into buying oh. a car. <laughs> I, actually, they manipulated me into going to school. <laughs> <laughs> so it might come as no surprise to anyone i had zero plans for further education oh my goodness <laughs> uh yeah anyways um yeah that worked out great yeah um okay should we do some quick davos after dark yeah okay uh so thanks for joining us for those of you who are going to be dropping off now it was great to have you and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode 
Um, next time, we are going to be jumping back into some Ned, some Catelyn, uh, just pulling them up here. We're going to be reading chapters 55 through 59. That's Catelyn's 8th, Tyrion's 7th, Sansa's 5th. Get back to some Eddard, his 15th, and then another Catelyn with her 9th. So join us next time. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it, and we are now going to be moving on to Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. Okay, so talking this time about a couple of different things that at least drew my attention. One is I really love Serial Pharrell. What do you guys think? Is he dead? Is he not dead? No way. He's not dead. I mean... George has taken it further to the line of death, like Brienne and Jamie and uh, John. Even. John, perhaps. Yeah. Serio, we even like hear, hear sword hitting flesh. He's alive. And there is only one thing we say to death. Not today. Yeah. But what but what role is he playing? Yeah, I think I go back to something you called me out on several episodes ago, Brooke, with the, the tale of the last hero, and you're like, he hasn't mentioned this thing again since. Why Why do you think this is important? Eh, same thing. It's just a minor character. He's just dead. I want him okay. to be alive. I love Serio, but I don't have any reason to believe that George wants him alive for anything. Yeah, there's no evidence as to him being needed. Um, on the other hand, we just saw him drop, like, five Lannisters in, like, 0.7 seconds. Mm. Um you don't think he could spin out of the way of this big clunky guy in armor and, and get away somehow. Um, I, I'd love I the same thing. Like, yeah. I, I, I thought the same thing. It seems like, uh, you know, a little faint to the right, spin to the left and you're, you're out the door. Nobody's looking for him. Um, the, the night's slow in the armor, right? I, I don't think he could, I don't think he could beat Sir Marin to your point earlier, Brooke about, you know, Sir Marin's a good friggin' fighter. He wouldn't be here if he wasn't. But mm -hmm. he's slower in that armor, as we've seen in the Egan Egan fight. Um, you know, maybe he could have beaten him, beat him to the door, and got out. Mm -hmm. I. But your point's well taken, Scott. Is is what role would he play in a book, in a series, in a world so full of characters that even George himself can't keep him straight? Why would he have this guy disappear in the first book and still not even have any glimpse of reappearing unless he's somebody else? Hmm? Yeah, could be. Um, <laughs> it, uh, and that. You know, there's um, – I can't remember who the author is now. Maybe you guys will know because you're more literarily minded than I am. Uh, there was an author who said, you know, you don't hang a shotgun on the wall. If you're writing a story, you don't hang a shotgun on the wall unless you're going to use it later. In other words, you don't bring up something and mention a shotgun hanging on the wall just in passing unless you intend to use that shotgun later on in the story. And so sometimes I think about that type of stuff with Serio. I might be wrong, but I think that's I think that's a, a play thing. I think that's a – yeah, I just Googled it. It's Chekhov. Um, mm, yeah, you don't, you don't mention familiar. there's a rifle hanging on the wall in the notes if you're not going to use it, right? So – Right. So, uh, but maybe, maybe it has been used. Maybe his whole role was just to, to teach Arya and get her in that frame of mind of seeing and, and stuff like that. So, <sighs> yeah, I would I love, know. I would love for him to be alive though. He's a great character. Very fun. There's my completely just crackpot theory of him being Jacques and Hagar. 
which I think is shared by others. I think that's a theory that's not um, exclusive to me. Um, I also was thinking, what if he killed Marin Trant and took Marin Trant's face and is Marin Trant right now? Yeah, I don't remember what I... I, I... Can't be, though. That's just well, stupid. I don't remember what Marin Trant does later. Is he the yeah. one that betrays Tyrion and tries to kill him? Or is that somebody else? I can't remember which That's one. Someone else. He, um, Marin beats up Sansa and does some other stuff. So I really don't think it's him. But... Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Yeah. Who there knows? Are, there are crack pottery theories about Sirio everywhere. Sirio yeah. is Dario Nahara. Sirio is his Benjen Stark. Sirio is like people make all sorts of crap up about who Sirio yeah. might be. And it's just because they love him, right? Yeah. They don't want to admit that he's gone. Yeah. If there's any loophole that he could still be alive, they're going to exploit it. Yeah, right. Um, do you guys want to talk about this this raven of J.R. Mormons? Yeah. <laughs> one of the, to me, one of the more puzzling pieces in the whole story is what the raven is. Um, and what he's saying when he communicates. George pays particular attention to letting the raven talk. In the story, he's always saying stuff, and George is always pointing out what he's saying. Is that yeah. a is that a rifle on the wall? Well, uh, I don't know, Brooke. Yeah, good question. Again, I bring up the sort of ambiguity of warging. It could be something like that. It could be the spirit of some long lost black brother, or it could just be a super intelligent animal like one of the dire wolves. He literally told. John to burn the body. It was the raven who said, burn, burn, burn. Yeah, and then exactly. John grabbed the lantern from yeah. the Lord Commander's hand. I'm burning, I'm so. burning, I'm burning for you, raven. But I think, uh, to me, uh, the, the thing that stands out about this, and I didn't, I didn't have time to go look. I, I, had a, I had a feeling that this was the first time the raven was speaking other than the word corn, that he wasn't just repeating what somebody else had just said. And I'm not certain. I didn't have time to go look, but yeah, I feel it might like be the that's first. True. Yeah, you could be right. I don't know either. Um, someone will probably let us know. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely not the last, though. This is a great thing we got going here. We can just, like, suppose all these things and be like, hey, can somebody <laughs> out there answer our questions? Well, that's the that's the downfall sometimes to doing off the cuff recording is sometimes we back ourselves into a corner where we're not sure of something. Yeah. We can only prepare so much. However, this time it's clearly <clears throat> laziness. I could have researched this. Sure. My bad, everyone. Um, yeah, do better, Scott. Sorry. Also, I'm I'm very much in a place where uh, doing this podcast has got me all hyped up and and more interested than ever in the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom. But every time I dip my toes in, I'm like, I gotta stop. Because I'll get theories in my head. I'll remember stuff and accidentally spoil during the discussions. I'll I'll be overthinking every time we do our 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 podcast, and it'll be a disaster. So <laughs> instead, I'm just living in willful ignorance. It's great, and that's not a bad place to be. It's the same. It's similar to the reason I can't read the theories is because I'll start. Um, buying into them without thinking them through myself and I'm trying to force myself to do that. And one of my theories, and I'm going to stick to it because I really like it, is that um, that that um, Blood Raven is communicating through Mormont's Raven. Um, I think that's him who's in there. 
Yeah, Brooks Organ thing, right? Yeah, I think it's I think it's Blood Raven, uh, and I think that he and Mormont and Benjen are Team John in, uh, in cahoots. In cahoots to try to get John to realize his destiny. I may be backing you into one of those corners that you were referring to, but do you think he's always in that Raven? Not necessarily. I really liked, uh, this was a side discussion that Scott and I had. Um, am I backing you into a corner by asking you to share what you did about the corn stuff, Scott? No, but again, I didn't have time to research it. So um, my, my, my total guess theory is that when the Raven is saying corn, uh, again, based on Matt's theory being correct, when the Raven is saying corn, uh, Blood Raven is not, not working him. When he's saying anything else, uh, he is. This is kind of just the theory that birds are smart, but they're not that fucking smart. And that he knows corn because he wants corn, but he doesn't know how to repeat whatever he hears. Um, but, uh, but, the, but the blood raven is warging him when he's saying other things. Sure. Um, I, don't, I don't have any. That's just, that's just as crack pottery as any of the Serio stuff, I suppose. But it's <laughs> just an interesting thought I had, I guess. It's fun Davos after dark fodder. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, either that or it's like a call to attention like pay attention to me like the raven's trying to say pay attention to me pay attention to me and the way he's doing that is by saying corn 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 but that is one of the more puzzling things that i want to research more is the meaning of corn in the raven and when the raven says that Uh, is there anything you guys else you want to talk about uh in davos after dark Hmm. Um, if it is, let's, uh, let's make it a quick one. No, just the, I, I guess just a side note on the marching South, <laughs> like, I was just like, they should go North man. Uh, even on my first read, I was like, yes, please just go North instead. Just <laughs> go that way. And man, imagine how thankful Jor, uh, Giora Mormont would be if that happened a host of 12,000 shows up at the wall. Yeah, I bet he would have, like, kissed Stannis on the mouth if he was still alive. For sure. That would have been Stannis, awesome. Stannis, the only one who goes north. Yeah. I love Very cool. Stance. Well, and we don't have any, <laughs> any new Star Wars stuff to talk about. Um, well, there are names. We don't have to go into it, but there are names for those characters. Yes. Uh, oh, seriously? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the uh, John Boyega's character is named Finn. Which is funny. Uh, he's on the run, much like Huck Finn, uh, mm. on the run with uh, with his companion up the river, and uh, that's kind of an interesting name to choose for somebody that's on the run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and typically they make up names. Or I guess Luke is a man. Never mind. You know what? Never mind. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, we do have for those who are interested, the new Hobbit film is coming out next week, and. Um, Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Maybe not. Who knows? I'll be going to see it. My wife got tickets to an advanced screening from her work. So we're going to go see it on Tuesday. Lucky uh, ducks. Eh, we'll see. I haven't. I think Scott and mine's um, not being impressed with the new Hobbit films has been at least mildly apparent on the other episodes of this good. podcast. I didn't like it at all. I actually liked it's, the first one more than I liked the second one. It's gotten to a sad place. For, I'm a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings films, a big fan of the books too. Um, and I like The Hobbit also, not as much as Lord of the Rings, but I like The Hobbit. But um, if you had marketed these movies as dwarves and elves fight stuff, I'd have been totally in line and ready to see it. 
But if you mark it as The Hobbit and then completely change the story, I'm just shunning it. Um, <laughs> and so that's pretty much what I've done. Matt told me that he had advanced screening tickets this week. And I said, didn't that already release? <laughs> that's that's how completely out of the loop I am on, on The Hobbit movie. Yeah, but taking uh, the smallest book of all of them and turning it into three films, it's just like, oh boy. Trying to make uh, some money there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the oh, girls wow. at work who is Martin Freeman obsessed, uh, Chinook Center here in Calgary, is showing all three films at once. It's over eight hours in the theater. Uh, tickets are like 36 bucks. Wow. So you see the first, second, and then the third Hobbit, and it's uh, two days before the release. So Wow. Why don't they just watch The Office and Love Actually and get their fill? <laughs> well no that's what they're gonna do because uh they didn't really like the first one either they're gonna her and her boyfriend are gonna go out for dinner and they're gonna come back about halfway through the second one and then see the third one two days before anybody else gets to see it nice like oh yeah that's actually a pretty good idea that's but can you idea. imagine there there are gonna be people camped out there in the theater for eight hours what has the world come to my goodness. I know here in Utah they did that with the um with the Harry Potter films before the release of the of the um, oh. final one and they showed all That's the even longer. Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. No. Yeah. They did it oh. with Loader too. Yeah. With what? Loader. Oh. Somebody'll do it with Star Wars, I'm sure. Uh mm, yeah. A lot of movie. Whew. But you're probably right, Scott. They'll do it. If they'll make them money, they'll do it. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a, a good Davos After Dark session. Um, thanks for joining us, everybody, for this week. Uh, we're going to all give everybody a chance to sign off rather than just ending abruptly like we've done in the past. So this is Matt <laughs> reminding you to never let the Wookiee win. And Scott here. Uh, this episode reminded you that the little boy is all grown up and he's grown up and he's grown up. And this is Brooke reminding you that Love Actually is an excellent holiday film, but not as good as Die Hard. Good night, everybody. Good night. Night. Good night.